I think for most all of us, when we first come to uh, hear of the Dharma and understand that there is a practice to undertake uh, to to realize Dharma in our lives, that we look for um, very concrete steps, techniques, practices that we can do something in order to, or as a vehicle for making effort in a direction that we feel uh, the Dharma is, is leading us. And it's been my observation that a lot of us, when we begin, make too much effort, or we make wrong effort. Uh, but nevertheless, we're very sincere and making a lot of effort to to uh, acquire some kind of confirming experience. We want some confirmation that this works, or I'm doing it right, and and so we, we make this kind of effort until we either wear ourselves out or have some kind of confirmation. And I think for all of us who have had some time in that mode of practice, we've come to realize that the Dharma is more subtle than that. It's not something that we can acquire with just willpower. We can't acquire understanding or balanced mind just by mandating it or believing it or wanting it, but rather we have to grow into it almost because we make mistakes. Because we try too hard, we back off. Because we don't try hard enough, we make more effort. And so somewhere in between trying too hard and not trying hard enough is the right place, the balance. The same with using you know, techniques. We can try as many techniques as we want. And you know, when we first get a technique, you know, usually we overuse it. And it's like anybody who has one tool, a hammer. When you only have a hammer for a tool, everything looks like a nail. Well, when you only have one technique, you use it for everything, and that's not always skillful. And so it takes a while before we learn the where and when different techniques are beneficial and when they're contraindicated. So every, every practice has its strengths and its limitations. And we can only discover them for ourselves through practice. And when we discover and when we know for ourselves what the strength of this particular practice is and what its limitation is, then we've come to a place in the middle. We come to the middle path. We come to a balanced relationship to techniques, teachings, um, whatever it is we've acquired as the vehicle for our uh, dharma uh, aspirations. And only later do we recognize, do we begin to see in ourselves, and it happens on retreat also, just on a retreat even. You know, we make a lot of effort the first few days and then we get disillusioned and we back off and we get frustrated and disappointed and doubtful. And then about day seven, uh, we kind of like give up and finally drop into a place of a little more balance and 
so too in the, the, the larger life of our Dharma practice, it takes a while before we just settle into um, and recognize, really, the momentum of uh, living a lifestyle infused with the Dharma rather than doing a Dharma practice that we slather on top of our lifestyle. So I want to talk a little bit about how that happens uh, in our practice. Because as Saito Tejaniya acknowledges, he said, we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon and not a sprint. But let's face it, our conditioning in our culture is if you want something, get it. Go for it. And the quicker the better. And we have a, a kind of a conditioned expectation that if you make more effort, quicker, harder, try harder, then you'll be more successful faster. And that works for a lot of things, but not for the Dharma. And so, you know, long-distance runners who settle into the marathons and ultra-marathons, they got a different pace than a sprinter. And while we may start out as a sprinter, we have to end up as a marathon or maybe a walker, <laughs> like some of us. So I want to talk about the five faculties which most guide the development of wisdom and the unfolding of our Dharma lifestyle. And these five faculties, they're known as the five spiritual faculties, the five controlling faculties, because they're the ones that are most responsible. They're not the only ones, but they're the ones that are most responsible for guiding the unfolding of our mind. The first is sadha, usually translated as faith, but I prefer trusting or confidence. The second is virya, translated as energy or effort, uh, but I like sairas, Articulation of right effort is being persevering effort. The third is mindfulness itself, sati, mindfulness, the function of which is to remember, but it also has the characteristic of observing. The fourth is samadhi, or stability of mind, sometimes called concentration, which is a little bit misleading, but it refers to the collectedness of the mind or this, the um, stability of the mind. And the fifth factor is panya, wisdom or understanding. And the interesting thing about these five faculties is that they are, they have a cause-effect relationship. Because of faith, we make effort. Because of making effort, we become more mindful. Because of more continuity of mindfulness, the mind becomes stable with the stability of mind, we see things more clearly and understand them more correctly or with a more refinement. When we have that kind of understanding, when we get a bit of understanding and we see, oh, oh this is the way it is, it supports even greater confidence, greater faith, greater trusting of the practice, and we make more effort, more mindfulness, more stability, more understanding. And the development of these five faculties grows cyclically, incrementally, and due to cause and effect. And so we just have to start 
we can't we can't start at the end. We can only start where we are, with whatever level of trust we have, make the effort we can, and if we persevere, if we keep at it, then these faculties will grow. Um, I don't want to say spontaneously. We're making an effort, but they do unfold in their own rhythm. For most of this retreat, we have used the word mindfulness and awareness synonymously. But I want to make a distinction tonight because I'm talking about the mental factor of mindfulness, not the activity of mindfulness. So I want to distinguish mindfulness tonight as a factor, one of the five factors. But awareness is the activity of these five factors operating together. Because in every moment of awareness, these five factors are present. One of which is mindfulness, which has the function of remembering and the characteristic of observing. So I'll I'll get to explain that a little more. But I just want to distinguish that tonight I'm speaking about mindfulness and awareness as and pointing out the differences. So the first of these factors is sadha, generally translated as faith, confidence, or trusting. I was in my mid-twenties, and I'd finished university, and I was living in a commune, recovering from all my years of schooling, and um, it was a Grateful Dead in Pink Floyd commune. <laughs> you know, you got to have some glue to hold yourself together. <laughs> Partaking of the sacrament as often as we could. And, uh, and I didn't know anybody who meditated. I was not interested in spiritual practice. I'd never heard of Buddhism other than the word. Uh, didn't know anything about it. But there was one woman in the, in the commune who got this book, Beginning to See, in the back of which said, if you want more information about mindfulness, right here, and she wrote, found out that there was a mindfulness Vipassana retreat happening just an hour and a half from where we live. So she said she wanted to go, and I thought, I thought she said something like, I'm going to go on a holiday for a couple of weeks. <laughs> That sounded good to me, so I said, "Sign me up." So I went too, and we got to the we got to this uh, old Catholic uh, monastery on the coast of Maine, and it was the last two weeks of the first three month course. That was back in '75, and uh, there were 50 people that had been there for two and a half months already. And we walked in, and everybody's wrapped up in blankets because it's November, and it was it's the the, the retreat that we. <coughs> We went to started the day after we saw the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder Review concert. That was good. Good way to start your retreat. So, so we went. So we went to this retreat, and everybody's wrapped up in blankets because it's cold. They're walking around, shuffling around in the dark, looking at the floor. You know, nobody will look at you. Nobody's talking to you. You know, what the what the hell's going on here? You know. So we looked on the left, and there's the dining room where there was going to be registration in a couple hours, and on the right was the meditation hall. We opened the door, looked in, everybody's sitting quietly like stones. And on the door was the schedule that said, you know, like out here, wake up at four, sit, walk, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, 7.30, talk. 
8, 8.30, walk, sit, further sleep. So we, we looked at each other and said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk. <laughs> Which really meant we get an hour a day to listen. <laughs> but nevertheless, we were there, we paid our, we paid our dues, but we thought we paid our dues, we actually paid our bill, and now we've got to pay our dues for two weeks. And it was sheer and utter torture. I mean, it was totally miserable. I mean, the body was in excruciating agony. I sat up back and leaned against the piano. And if you think the body was in excruciating pain, the mind was like a wreck. I was detoxing, and <laughs> it, was, it was nothing that I expected, nothing I was looking forward to, and I didn't know what to do in there. But an interesting thing happened. When I heard the Dharma talks in the evening, each evening, and uh, the, the retreat was led by Jack, Joseph, Sharon, and another fellow, Richard Barsky, who has since passed away. When I heard those Dharma talks, it was as if I heard what I'd always believed, but I'd never heard it before. It was like, there was no debate, there was no questioning, it was just like, right, I agree. I mean, I totally, I get it. That's, that was where I was coming from, but I'd never heard about it never read about it, didn't know anybody that espoused it. And so it was very easy for me to be enthused, excited, interested, even though the sitting was terrible and my mind was worse. So at the end of those two weeks, and this was in the old days when it was silent and micro-movements and everything was... So we went back to the commune. Now we, went, we drove back to the commune and everybody's there doing their same old thing, you know, um, living their life just like we had been two weeks before. And while we knew everybody and we knew what they were doing and everything was familiar, everything was completely different. We just didn't see it the same way at all. It's just like it was so obvious that our minds and hearts were in a completely different place. Even though we were there, we were good friends with everybody there, and we had a lot of relationships with them, but it was just, we just felt like strangers because of where our heart and mind had gone with right, getting right view and a little practice. I've often wondered, or I spent some years wondering what happened during that retreat because ever since then I've been totally involved in the Dharma and on staff at the meditation center and a monk and teaching and it's just it has become my whole life you know almost immediately after that retreat and I wondered what what happened and I realized that my faith was awakened my sada was awakened and what sada does when it when it blossoms is it does a few things one is it clarifies your spiritual aspiration and now what that really means is it gives it shows you the direction that you spiritually are aligned with that you want to go in your life you may not know how to do it you may not know the details but you feel like okay i know the direction i'm going now that's clarifying spiritual objective the second thing that sada does is it is it gives you the aspiration to seek in that direction, 
to you know the direction, and so you aspire to kind of move along that move along in that direction. And the third is that uh, the fourth thing, third thing is that you have confidence. You have some some level of confidence in. In my case, it was in the teachings of the Dharma. I didn't know the teachers. I didn't hear. I didn't really get the Buddha part. I didn't get the Sangha part. I didn't have any confidence in myself. Maybe I did. I was kind of arrogant, so probably I had some kind of false confidence in myself. But I just felt like that's this is it. And the thing about faith is that it it you know I mentioned I mentioned to one of my groups that. When we have a lot of desire in the mind, we seek pleasure. When we have faith in the heart, we seek the good. The good meaning the wholesome. And so when your faith gets aroused, then you seek the wholesome in others that you can receive, or you seek the wholesome in yourself. That's why when we practice, when we hear the when we hear right view. That's, that's a wholesome state of mind. We feel uplifted when we practice and develop wholesome qualities of mind like we do here. While it's challenging and hard, no doubt about that, still we feel, we recognize that it's good for us, that it's good to be faithful, it's good to be loving, it's good to be aware, it's good to be try to understand, it's good to make this effort, even though, you know, it's hard. It's not always a slam dunk. And yet, there's something good about it. I don't mean goody-good. I mean intrinsically, inherently good. It's what good human beings aspire to. So this is faith. Of course, there's a lot of um, challenges to our faith. You know, we, we run into our own limitations and our own doubts and doubts about the teacher and doubts about the teachings and am I doing it right? And and those things come. But I, I for myself, I, I honestly have to say I never felt any doubt. I had challenges, of course, but I never had any doubt about the Dharma, the wisdom of the Dharma or even my own... <laughs> funny, my own ability to do to do the practice. I went on staff after I did that two-week retreat. I went on staff at the meditation center uh, shortly thereafter. And one of my first days on staff, I was up in the attic, um, insulating the attic ceiling so that it'd be a little warmer during the, during the winter. And I was having a conversation. Now remember, I'd done one two-week retreat. I started having a conversation with uh, Rodney Smith. He was on staff at the time. And we were having a conversation about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about Nibbana. We didn't know anything about Nibbana. But nevertheless, nevertheless, we were having a, a pretty lively discussion about it. And he reminded me, some years later, that I said at that time, I have absolutely no doubt that I will realize the Dharma in this life. I was absolutely confident, unshakably confident. Of course, I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know what was involved. I didn't know how I was ever going to confirm it, but faith doesn't rely on knowledge. Faith relies on an intuitive understanding that we have within ourselves. And now we have to test it, we have to check it out. You can't just rely on faith and, you know, hope that 
it all happens without making the effort, we have to fulfill it. But nevertheless, faith isn't based on how much you know. It's based on what you know about yourself and how you feel inside about what it is you're hearing or what it is you have faith in. So that's the first of the spiritual faculties. And in, while I'm speaking about my initial connection with uh, faith, experience of faith, we should understand that as we continue to practice, we have recurring boosts, boosts to our faith. With more wisdom, we get more faith. And so we can, we can further clarify our spiritual objective, further aspire to uh, fulfill the, the, the path and more confidence as we go along to continue the process. And so faith grows. It's not like we just get a hit of faith and that's it for the journey. It's like it's a living process, really, the growth of faith through the making of effort to to fulfill the practice. So the second of the spiritual faculties is virya, or energy, effort. And... There's a lot that could be said. In fact, it's said that the Buddha spoke more about right effort than anything else, more than about mindfulness, more than about Nibbana, more than about all kinds of things. But we have to ask, well, why did he, why did he have to speak so much about right effort? Well, it's because there's so much wrong effort. <laughs> there's so many places you can go off the, off the road on a ditch on the right or a ditch on the left, and finding the place of balanced effort is really a moment-to-moment adjustment. And it really is. I, I, I realized this when I was, was in the monastery as a monk in Burma. This was after 10 years of practice, and then I went to the monastery. Is that really it's moment to moment if we make the adjustments in too much effort or too little effort. It comes down to each moment there's a monitoring of is it too much leaning forward? Is it too much settling back? And it's not like we can just check in once a day and say, oh, I've got to try harder today. Or I've got to kind of back off this retreat. It's, it's got to be much more active than that. Initially, we, we can't, can't do that. But ultimately, we grow in that direction to where we just check in more frequently, monitoring effort, energy, and uh, finding, finding a place of balance. What I want to say, or what I want to point to with um, effort is its proximate cause. Because even though we have faith and confidence, we know the direction we want to go, we're aspiring to go there, we feel confident in, in moving forward, if we don't have a cause or a reason for making that effort, faith is just languishes. And the proximate cause for effort is samvega, which is spiritual urgency. And Patrice was, was mentioning it today. Spiritual urgency. Now, all of us came to this retreat for some reason. We picked this retreat at this time for whatever reason. And so there was something in your life that made this time, this retreat, this kind of practice urgent. Urgent enough for you to be here. But if we look kind of at a broader picture of urgency. What is it that even moves us to do Dharma practice? 
What is it that urges us to look in this direction, which is kind of inscrutable, and initially it's kind of hard. What is it, what is it that we're doing, and what is it we expect to get, and what is this, the goal even? One of the, um, one of the prime precipitants of samvega is when we, when we know someone close, when someone close to us dies. Someone close to us dies, and we're just, we're just immediately in this place of like unknowing. It's just like, what, what happened? What's going on? What, what happens when someone dies? And, and our whole life can get upended uh, for, a, for a while, and uh, we, want, we want to know something that we don't know, and there's this, this you know, seeking somewhere within ourselves or within conversations with others or whatever. We, 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 we clearly recognize we don't know something. And it's vital. It's, it's, it becomes urgent in some ways that we, that we do what we can to know, to understand, in this case, death. And as much as we can get information or explanations or different spiritual traditions, kind of descriptions and, and whatever, we don't know. We don't know from our own experience. And yet it can precipitate this search for meaning. And I think that that's what a lot of Samvega is. It's a search for meaning, for value, for purpose, for what's worth doing in life. What is, what's important to me? And again, this Samvega is not like just once in your life you feel a spiritual urgency and that's the fuel for the journey. It's like frequently, Many times in the course of our practice, we're going to have urgent upsurge, wepwelling of a sense of urgency to really get with, get with practice, however it is. After I'd been practicing for about 10 years, doing retreats here in the States for 10 years, I was doing an annual retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and it was a solitary retreat because the center was closed during the winter that year. And I was doing a retreat, and it was about, I had done, I just, uh, you know, six months earlier, I'd finished a a ten-month solitary retreat, or a retreat at the meditation center, and, you know, I was, you know, middle-aged, middle-aged, early, early adult-aged, I guess, (laughs) 35, 35, early adult. And um, I'd been practicing, but... You know, like, uh, my practice was not really, didn't have much momentum and wasn't too skillful at it. And about the third or fourth day of this retreat, I was actually doing lying down practice. It was called napping. <laughs> In all honesty. And I wasn't asleep, but I had this vision. And I'm not a woo-woo-wow-wow guy. I, I don't get woo-woo-wow-wowed at all, hardly ever. But I had this vision, and there was this clear image in my mind of a shrouded uh, skeleton. And it was a feminine voice said to me, the moment of death, 
the moment of your death is the most important moment of your life. And it wasn't a debate. It wasn't a question. It wasn't even a command. It was like, right. And with that, whatever it was, the decision was made, um, I'm going to devote my life to practice. I was a builder, I was a contractor, and I had a lot of contracts and busy, busy life. But I just made the decision on the spot. I'm done with it. I'm going to close the business. I'm going to Burma, or I'm going to go to Asia and ordain. I'm going to practice until I don't want to practice anymore. And it wasn't even a debate. And I hadn't been thinking about it. <laughs> you know, which is, which is pretty strange. Um, but it was just clear that there was something I needed to know about this life, about this practice, about myself. And it was urgent. It wasn't, there wasn't no time to waste. And it was easy to just let go of all that I was involved in at the time. And that took me to Burma for five years of practice, 25 years of teaching. Just last uh, December, January, I took a month of practice at home. And I was just doing kind of a casual practice, just sitting more and reading some Dharma. And, you know, life has been going on in this teaching mode for 27, 25 years. And again, another, another turning point and I, it seemed to occur. And I just started reflecting, all right, I'm 66. I've been practicing for 40 years. And I've been teaching for 25 years, and you know, and I've done, you know, the family thing, and, and just have done the organizational thing, and have done everything that seems to need to be done. You know, I mean, there's a lot of life to live, but what's 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 left? What's really important to do? What what what's important for me to do? Um, not in an ambitious way, but just more, in a, I think, in a spiritual way, without knowing that's what I was asking. And the clearest indication I got was, well, simplify a little more and practice quite a bit more. And I don't know just how that's going to manifest, but it's clear that there's a turning point somewhere in the last uh, year or two that it's just like, okay, time is only running out, and it's only ever been running out. But uh, the far horizon has gotten much closer. And, you know, this that has been of such value to me, this practice and this, this understanding of the possibilities of liberation or freedom from suffering, and to the extent that I see, you know, less suffering, that's confirming, and yet there's still plenty of suffering. And, you know, I have faith that you know, I have confidence that there's more work to be done that can be done, and maybe as we head towards the, uh, you know, the inevitable end of our life, it may be easier to let go of things that are just kind of keeping us tethered to our suffering. And it's just the understanding of where, of how some vega arises to make to, to inspire us to make greater effort. Again, there's a lot that can be said about uh, effort, energy, 
Saito Tejaniya, I like his um, understanding of right effort when he says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. You know, I mentioned earlier that the the, uh, energy manifests as non-collapse. Perseverance is not collapsing. Not just abandoning your aspiration. It's just like staying there with it. Just staying, staying in there for whatever, whatever shows up to be recognized, dealt with, acknowledged. Again, Don Juan, who taught Carlos Castaneda and all of us so much, Carlos wrote of Don Juan's teaching, he said, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Sobering. So, with faith or with confidence or with trust in the Dharma or yourself or a teacher or the Buddha, whatever it is, whatever it is that inspires your aspiration, confidence, we make effort. If there's a sense of urgency, we'll make more effort. Or I should say, the more urgent it is, the more effort we make. And when we make effort, what is it that we do with this effort? What is the result of making effort? Well, in this uh, five spiritual faculties, mindfulness. Now, this is where I'm going to be speaking about mindfulness as a factor of the mind. Mindfulness as a factor of the mind remembers. It remembers to recognize the present moment. Now, you know, when we're doing a guided meditation in the morning and we're just reminding you, just settle in, notice the body, notice the sounds, notice your, just ask, is the mind aware? And while we're, while we're narrating and guiding, you know, if you listen, uh, you can do and you can follow and there'll be some continuity to remembering to recognize. The difficulty comes when we stop giving the instruction, and you're left on your own. Now, if you haven't internalized those instructions, then your old worries, judgments, fears, confusion, doubt, will start up commenting or narrating or guiding your practice. And, well, we, we forget to pay attention. We forget to recognize. We just get caught up in our usual stories. And so, practice is about learning how to cultivate this ability to remember. And we need a lot of reminders. We need a lot of reminders from others. We need a lot of reminders. We need to prompt ourselves a lot. That's why the structure of a retreat, where everybody's practicing and you can see everybody practicing, everyone's following a schedule or a non-schedule or whatever, but that's all that's going on here. Everything you see, everything you hear is a reminder Take notice of this, take notice of this, notice this, follow this, do this. And so that's the value of of an intensive retreat is 
you get a lot of reminders, you get a lot of prompting to remember, to recognize the present moment. So while the function of, of mindfulness is to remember, the manifestation or mindfulness as a factor manifests with observing. So when we remember, then we observe the present moment. We observe, not through our eyes, but we observe, we feel into, as I mentioned earlier in this retreat. We feel into and really observe, come to know intimately, experientially, what this present moment is. And that's how we recognize it. So mindfulness has this this function. I mean, the function of mindfulness is to remember, but it manifests as observing, coming face to face with the present moment, so to speak, and its perception that recognizes it. Now, the proximate cause for mindfulness is clear perception. Clear perception is the recognition, the ability to recognize the distinctive characteristic of this this moment. And if we can clearly recognize this moment's experience, it conditions mindfulness the next moment. So that's why we teach in you know some some traditions. It's very active technique and in this it's not so much an active technique but it's it's also not denied that if you learn to identify even label or sub-vocally acknowledge the name of what it is you're experiencing that strengthens perception so to the extent that we strengthen perception we increase the continuity of mindfulness remembering so the challenge is we want to remember but recognize and acknowledge it to ourselves because that's what supports the continuity of mindfulness. When I was practicing in Burma, I was I ordained after I'd been there for four months and I was just practicing um, sitting and walking alternate hours, 20 hours a day and I remember one time, I think I'd been there a couple of years, just doing the practice, and I was walking on the back side of the dormitory where I lived in, and I was just walking along the hallway, doing slow motion, micro, micro-stepping as we used to do then, and I recognized something in my mind that I'd never seen before. And it was a voice that said, Oh, poor me. Fill in the blah, blah, blah. Oh, poor me. Fill in the blank. I'm so tired. Oh, poor me. This isn't working. Oh, poor me. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, poor me. I can't do this. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. I think, oh, poor me. I'd I'd never seen this voice in my mind before. And yet, once I recognized it, I saw it. In, not not incessantly, but a lot. Oh, poor me, I can't do this, I'm too old. Oh, poor me, I can't do this, I'm too stupid. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. You know, I did too many drugs. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. I haven't done enough drugs. Oh, poor, <laughs> oh, poor me, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just anything was oh, poor me. But what happened when I, when I, when I bought into this unconscious voice is I stopped practicing. 
Oh, poor me, I can't do it. Okay. I quit. But I didn't even know it. I didn't notice it. I just wasn't practicing effectively. And so what this did was it awoke me. It, I awoke to, wow, this, this, this deeply buried habit that was so unconscious. I'd picked up somewhere. I'd, it had been conditioned, you know, back in my early childhood somewhere. Never had seen it till I was what, 37 years old. And it took insistent, I mean, it's just the continuity of looking for a couple of years to uncover it. But once I uncovered it, I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't miss it. And it was like every time it arose, I would just go, wow, there it is again. And keep practicing. And not, not, not collapse. My energy didn't collapse. It was just like, huh. So this, this, this unseen commentary in my mind used to be the source or the precipitant of my collapsing energy. But I never knew it. So once I got tuned into it, I just saw it. It was like every time I saw it, it was like, whoop, energy boost. Whoop, energy boost. Here I go again. Whoops, energy boost. And for, I, I don't know how long, but it seems like it was for a few weeks, maybe, maybe a month or two. I don't know. I, I didn't keep track at the time. But I would notice I was super diligent and vigilant in noticing it. And after a period of time, it never showed up again. It doesn't show up. And it doesn't mean that there aren't challenges in practice, whether it's painful, emotionally painful, or physically painful, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, there's challenges in practice. But the oh, poor me, self-pity, the voice of self-pity, doesn't show up. Never gets established in the mind anymore. I can be happy to understand that, you know, the when we awaken to the habits of the mind and we really train ourselves to not buy into these unconscious voices, this unconscious conditioning that I spoke about last night, and we see it, it's like, that's how we free ourselves. We free ourselves from this unconscious conditioning that we don't know anything about. We make it visible. So with mindfulness, with this remembering to recognize the present moment, everything comes into view, eventually. Because mindfulness is accompanied by this quality of mind called ujjukata. Ujjukata means straightness of mind. What it means in practice is that when mindfulness arises, it sees, it observes things as they really are or really were, if you're, if you're dealing with a memory. Really are, really were. And so when, it had, when there's some momentum to mindfulness, you can no longer deceive yourself. Now we are always spinning a story in favor of ourself. What we want, what we believe, what we hope for. We're always spinning it in our favor. Mindfulness stops the spin. And so you see things just kind of nakedly. It's like, this is the way it is. And if you're attached or if you're craving, you see it. You, you don't believe it anymore. You see it. Or if you get entangled in a, an aversive snit, you know. And, you know, aversion is so often accompanied with self-righteousness. I should be angry. They're being such a... 
you know, uh, and we feel that self-righteousness prevents us from seeing the danger of the aversion. But mindfulness doesn't allow you to get in, to, to, to be, a, to not see aversion clearly. And so you can't self-righteously, you just see, this is aversion. You might want to be self-righteously indignant and feel justified in it, but okay, but you still see the aversion. You don't, you don't miss it. You don't, you don't buy into it as you know, a skillful, good thing to do. You know, this is an unskillful. And so this, this, uh, this quality of straightness of mind or non-deception non, is what really uh, informs us of what is skillful and what is unskillful in life. Because while others may offer us advice and every spiritual tradition has their mm, precepts or commandments or book of truths or whatever it is, uh, you know, when we read them or when we hear them, they're just suggestions or advice or somebody else's idea of what's right or wrong, or what's skillful or unskillful. But with mindfulness, we know for ourselves. Because we feel how it is. And if it feels like suffering, then it is suffering. And we can't lie to ourselves. We can't deceive ourselves by that anymore. The other thing about mindfulness, and I just want to mention it in passing, but it's important, is it's not like some people can be mindful and other people can't. It's a mental muscle. If we do the work of trying to develop this ability to remember, the result will happen and mindfulness will grow. It's not your personal failure or your personal accomplishment that you're mindful or not. It's if you make the effort, mindfulness will grow. The, the, the challenge for us is that we don't think it's growing fast enough. We don't think it's mindful. We don't think we're mindful enough or fast enough or it's too hard to work or whatever. But that's just being impatient. So we want to be patient, you know, the marathon. Remember the marathon? Because mindfulness is a capacity of mind that any of us can develop. If we're sincerely motivated, if we have that sense of urgency and make the effort, it will happen. The fourth factor, fourth of the spiritual controlling faculties, is called samadhi. Samadhi means seclusion of mind. When the mind is secluded from the torments, it calms down. Okay? If there's no torments, if there's no aversion, desire, jealousy, envy, fear, depression, whatever, in the mind, then the mind is just calm. That's the subjective experience of the collected mind. The collected, stable mind is not invaded by or not visited by any of these torments. And so the subjective feeling is calm. We just, the body feels calm, the mind feels calm, the mind feels stable. Now, stability in this experience 
is it feels stable in the body and the mind feels stable, meaning the mind is present, recognizably present, moment after moment. Okay, so this gives us a, this gives us a clue and a cue as to how to understand the development of samadhi. For many of us, when we think of concentrating in meditation practice, we kind of hunch our shoulders, furrow our brow, point our attention to the tip of our nose, and kind of focus, like, you know, as if that's the way to concentrate the mind. Well, it, it creates a lot of tension and is quite good at giving you a headache, but that's not how you concentrate the mind. The proximate cause for collectedness of mind is happy comfort of mind and body. Relax. For the body to be relaxed, for the mind to be relaxed, is the proximate cause for the mind being calm, being stable, being free of these torments. So when I say, oh, relax the body, you know, we come in and sit down and we got all kinds of postures and whatever. I say, relax the body. It's like, okay, we know what to do. We bring our attention into the body. We scan around for where there's tightness, tension, holding, gripping. And we just settle down, let the torso just kind of collapse into the sitting bones and relax. So when I say relax the mind, what do we do? You know, kind of somehow <laughs> relax our Relax our face, relax our mind, relax our head. But that's not what relaxing the mind is. Relaxing the mind is let go of any agenda. Letting go of any agenda in practice. Letting go of any project. Letting go of any uh, kind of uh, trying to create anything, trying to get rid of anything. And, And really, the practice is, remember, it's just to recognize the present moment's experience. Now... We hear that, and we hear it over and over again, and it's difficult to actually believe that that's all you got to do. We think I got to figure it out, I got to explain it, I got to confirm it, I got to get rid of this, I got to make this happen, and all of those are contaminants to the bare fact of remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And so, whenever you find yourself with some sense of struggle, some sense of it's not working, I gotta do this, or, or wondering what it is I gotta do to 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 kind of make it better. Nothing. You don't have to do anything except recognize you're struggling and in that hopefully we'll recognize that, oh, I'm trying to make this happen. I'm trying to get rid of that. I have an agenda to fix it. I have I want to explain it. And if we can see that and let that go. We, we adjust our attitude to just remembering to recognize the present moment. Now, it's hard because we're so, our minds are so complex. The hardest thing we're ever going to do in practice is keep it simple. It's hard because our minds are so complex they can elaborate just, uh, just fantastic uh, plans for how we're going to practice better, what we got to do to practice. Everything we've ever heard, we can weave into this grand plan of how we're going to practice better. 
But that's not simple. That's very complex. And the mind is busy creating things to do to fulfill our Dharma practice. That's not the way. There are times and places for doing all kinds of things. Practicing generosity, practicing loving kindness, practicing forgiveness, serving in the Dharma, serving Dharma communities, organizing, working for nonprofits like TCVC. There's lots of stuff to do, no problem. But in the actual practice of mindful awareness to, for the development of wisdom, just remember, recognize the present moment. Anything more than that is too much. And the mind's not relaxed. And if the mind's not relaxed, then samadhi, or seclusion of mind, is going to be hard to come by. Samadhi, the seclusion of mind, it grows in proportion to the continuity of mindfulness. The more frequently we remember to recognize the present moment, the more samadhi or stability the mind has. It's not how narrow or small the focus of the object is. It's not how intense the focus is. It's how continuous the remembering is. And we can remember anything. We can remember, you know, it can be a big experience. It can be just taking in the visuals of the whole room or just feeling the whole body. It doesn't have to be the microscopic sensation at the tip of the nostrils or the abdomen or something like that. You don't have to focus on some small object to stabilize the mind. It's the continuity of remembering to recognize that object that stabilizes the mind. So that's the fourth factor. And the fifth faculty is wisdom, understanding. Sadhu Bandita, the monk I practiced with as a, when I was a monk, he says, we live under multiple layers of delusion. As we practice, we see the delusion and we uh, reveal multiple layers of understanding. Okay. So the first layer of delusion that we suffer under is, do you know what's happening? Can you, be, can you remember to recognize the present moment? And we know how difficult that is. That's the first layer of delusion, and to the extent that we develop mindfulness, then, okay, we're, we're getting a handle on that layer of delusion, and we understand, oh, in every moment something is being known. That's the first wisdom. Okay. Subsequent, subsequent layers of delusion include, do you know why this experience has arisen? No. We, think, we often attribute it to some fault of ourself, or we blame someone else, or blame other conditions. But really, when we, when we begin to understand the unfolding of the mind, we see that there are causes and conditions giving rise to everything. It's not just because we want it, or someone's making us do it, or there's some other force that's forcing it upon us. It's like conditions. When we understand conditionality, as, as this young woman at the 
Revolution Retreat said, when we understand causes and conditions, we can retire from being master of the universe. We don't have to be in control. We, don't, we aren't in control. We can train the mind, but we can't control the mind. Or as Sayadaw says, the mind is not yours. All kinds of things happen in the mind that you would rather not have happen. And yet, when they happen, we're responsible to do something about it. Okay. That's the next layer of understanding. And there are just subsequent and more refined layers of delusion to get exposed and more um, liberating understandings to be realized. This is the path. This is the direction. As we progress in developing these five faculties, wisdom grows. The direction of wisdom for us in, for, for the most part, is towards more equanimity. Meaning, we see, oh, this is the way things have come to be. And we stop struggling with them. We learn to acknowledge, this is the way it is, for now, for me. We don't get so easily provoked into reactivity. We're able to open to and accommodate, welcome, all that life has to offer, pleasant or unpleasant, knowing that we can't stop it anyway. When we stop struggling with the way things are, the mind can find a place of ease with everything. And then we can be willing, we can be willing to face all of life. We don't have to carve out places where we don't go in our own mind because we're afraid. We can live full life. We don't blame others for our own experience. We understand there are causes and conditions giving rise to these difficult challenges that we face. So when we stop, when we, when we grow in this kind of understanding and we grow in equanimity, we're able to live with ourselves. We're able to live with other people. We're able to live with conditions. Not relying on them, but not opposing them, not struggling with them, or, but just, oh yeah, this is the way it is. Really deeply understanding that we can live in harmony with most everything. That doesn't mean we become a doormat to the world. Nobody's going to take advantage of us. It's only through Dharma understanding and development of equanimity that we we will ensure that we're not taken advantage of (coughs) by others. And without that that development of equanimity, we'll be uh, subject to the uh, being jerked around by anybody who's got our button. Anybody who knows our button can jerk us around until... We develop equanimity. And once we have, or as we develop, to the extent that we develop equanimity, we're not jerked around. We can see the way things are. We can see when we're being provoked. But rather than reacting, we respond. We respond out of awareness and understanding. This is wisdom. And when we see the benefit of equanimity, when we see the benefit of awareness, when we see the benefit of understanding our own life in this way, we feel inspired, re-inspired, re-aspired, more confident, make more energy, make more effort, be more mindful, stabilize the mind more, understand even more. And this is the way that our practice evolves gradually. It's not possible. It's just not possible to get it all in a weekend or a week or a year or a decade. It's not 
But if we have some faith, we have some confidence, and we understand what the good is within us, the good human qualities, and we aspire to uh, develop them or fulfill them, the interesting thing is, nobody can stop you. Nobody can stop you from fulfilling your own aspiration. Unless, I mean, unless you give them permission to. And why would you do that? But it takes a lot of courage to acknowledge that uh, truth. Well, first to even see it. But then once you see it, to acknowledge it and say, it's up to me. Hey, it's up to me and my teachers and the whole sangha to support, that supports practice and practice centers and retreats like this. Yeah, we rely on a lot, of course. But nobody can stop you. So where is it you want to go with your life? What is it that you have left to do? So let's let the words settle down for a minute. understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.